Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Vice Magazine Podcast, your definitive monthly guide to enlightening information. I'm Ellis Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vice Magazine. Thanks for tuning in to our first audio issue, which we're focusing on the future of technology. This issue was made in collaboration with a few of our friends down the hall at Motherboard, Waypoint, and The Creators Project. It's February 2017, a brand new year, and we have a lot to catch up on, so here's our table of contents. Photo editor Elizabeth Renstrom explains the backstory of our tech issue cover and the multitude of problems and arguing that we encountered along the way. Our art director, Matt Shane, definitely had a lot of opinions just about how the first round was looking. You know, they were pretty ugly. Our resident infographic wizard, Hassan Hussein, breaks down the future of medical technology. It does seem that it's just a matter of time before the larger, more complex human organs will be printable. We'll explore the world of virtual reality porn with investigative journalist and published author Emily Witt. It's pretty basic porno, except that instead of being small and on your laptop, it is big and kind of surrounds you. I sit down with my fellow editors at Waypoint, Motherboard, and The Creators Project to discuss the future of technology and how it shapes our outlooks on life. Facebook wants to give internet to the developing world, but wait, they want to give Facebook to the developing world. So what's the person who's concerned about that do? And Motherboard's feature editor, Brian Anderson, shares a story about a memento he picked up while visiting a morgue in Mexico. Can you guess what it is? You've probably worn one. Sort of an off-white, a bone uh, color, if you will. And they're disposable. But let's begin at the beginning, our cover image. This was hands down one of the most difficult covers to nail. We threw around a lot of different ideas, but in the end, we decided to let a computer create an image for us. This is the future of tech issue after all. It's a bit hard to explain, but essentially we fed a ton of old vice covers into a computer using a machine learning technique and let it spit out different results. Here's photo editor Elizabeth Renstrom explaining what went down behind the cover. How we go through every cover, especially for themes. I come up with like three different approaches to how we should handle it. The approach that everybody seemed to like the most was turning it over to a robot or whatever. We had no idea what that meant. We approached Derek, the editor-in-chief of Motherboard, and we asked, does this exist? Can we use a computer or a bot to feed existing images that we've produced and make something completely new? And so he then contacted Michael Byrne, who's also a contributing editor at Motherboard and also a professor doing research in computer science. He suggested this new technology called DCG 
A-N, and it stands for Deep Convolutional Generative Adversarial Network. Um, and we were like, okay, sure. <laughs> that sounds great. Here are 250 high-risk covers of the magazine. Do what you want. Our art director, Matt Shane, definitely had a lot of opinions just about like how he thought the first round was looking just because, you know, they were pretty ugly and it's like a crazy spot to be in when you're sort of down to the wire. And again, you've like limited yourself to using this technology and it's not doing what you want it to, but you can't teach it any better. We didn't give it a name, <laughs> but on the cover, you'll see we sort of treated it almost like an artifact, like an art piece. I think, honestly, the kind of arguments that we had after the fact and like the apprehension that we had leading up to like going to print, I thought it was funny because the whole point of doing this was we are giving a non-human complete autonomy and we just need to put it out and like that's what we're doing. We're handing so much of our lives over to technology these days. Vice Mag contributor Haisam Hussein offers a timeline of recent advancements in medical technology in a recurring segment we call, How Does It Work? My name is Haisam Hussein, and this month I'm exploring the major role computers are playing in medical innovation. Let's focus on some of the impressive developments in prosthetics. Artificial limbs have gone through a number of changes since people first started making them in ancient Egypt, and recently they've gone through some major advancements. The U.S. military's research wing, DARPA, has for years been funding the development of the Modular Prosthetic Limb, or MPL. Last year, for the first time ever, an amputee was able to not only control the MPL using the natural movements of her remaining arm muscle, but also to feel through the sensors on the MPL's fingers. Sensory input from the robotic fingers was then transmitted wirelessly to the remapped nerves, generating a sense of touch for the patient. Meanwhile, in Paraguay, a miniature robot made by a company called Virtual Incision performed complex surgery while inside a patient's stomach. The roughly fist-sized, two-armed robot was inserted into the abdomen through a small incision and successfully completed a colon resection once inside. Even smaller robots, called nanobots, are being developed to deliver drugs to specific areas of the body. These microscopic robots could potentially be sent into the brain to treat disorders like epilepsy and schizophrenia. Or they could target cancer cells so that they deliver drugs to only those cells, minimizing damage to the surrounding healthy cells. One of the more interesting items comes from Proteus Digital Health, and it involves an ingestible sensor the size of a grain of sand, a wearable patch, and a smartphone app. Once the sensor is swallowed and reaches the stomach, it sends information to the patch. The main function seems to be its ability to track your medication intake and share that info with your doctors, but it can also monitor your heart rate, activity, and rest. That's a quick look into this month's infographic. If you haven't already seen it, you can find it in our current issue or online at vice.com magazine. When I'm doing research for a graphic, I'll spend a few days scanning through websites, articles, and books, and I'll gather all the data that I can find. And in the end, because space on the page is limited, I use only a fraction of it. Here now are a few of the items that didn't make it onto the page. First, 3D bioprinting. I feature 3D printed body parts in the graphic, but those are made using synthetic materials for the most part. 
Scientists are at work figuring out how to 3D print entire organs using human cells. So far in Germany, a team has developed a process that allows them to bioprint human blood vessels. Aside from being printed, organs can be grown in a lab. Starting with stem cells, scientists so far have been able to grow fallopian tubes, an esophagus, an ear, and a mini kidney. It does seem that it's just a matter of time before the larger, more complex human organs will be printable. Sony now holds a patent for a camera-embedded contact lens. It'll be controlled by deliberate blinks and will be able to take photos and videos and store them in the area around the iris. Also, it's zoomable and won't need a battery because it'll be powered by the movement of your eyeball. Now that we've covered some of the latest in medical tech, what medical innovations would you like to see in the near future? This is Haisim Hussein for Vice Magazine. There have been some exciting advances in gaming in terms of VR, but it hasn't become a mainstream trend yet. We know sex sells, so Emily Witt immersed herself in the world of VR porn for this month's deep dive. Here's her in conversation with our senior editor, Chris Carroll. You have tried to write about VR porn once before, right? Yeah. What was the story there? I tried for the first time in 2014. I wrote to Oculus's publicity firm, Oculus Rift. And I was writing a book that came out this year called Future Sex, and I thought it might be nice to see if there was any pornography for this new technology that everybody was all excited about that at the time was still this new wondrous thing. And it was really funny. I got totally shut down by the publicity guy in a way that kind of surprised me. Well, I don't know. He just was like, we're not talking about this at all. And then a few weeks later, Oculus was acquired by Facebook for $2 billion. So clearly he had been told to avoid the issue. Your basic VR headset consists of a mask, hand controllers, a pair of headphones that you put on. You finally get everything queued up, and then you start it, you put on your headset, you put on your headphones. And then it's just like watching a really nice high-def flat-screen TV, except the TV has burst out of its rectangle and surrounds you. You can look up, you can look down, and the interaction is usually through these hand controllers. You played a bunch of different games and you also watched a lot of different VR porn. So what was some of the stuff that you were exposed to? Well, your kind of basic VR porn at this point is a POV video. They do have different torsos. You can be a man or a woman usually, but usually just a man. There's not a lot of innovation and content. It's pretty basic porno. And when you're wearing the VR mask, the people that your avatar is interacting with are very big. (laughs) It seems sort of giant and looming. But other than that, it wasn't all that different than what you would look up on Pornhub. I would say there's three other directions that virtual reality porn is going in. One is interactive role-playing games where you have an avatar and you're walking around in a space and, and chatting with people. I played a game called 3DX Chat that had these very opulent 
settings, you know, you'd be on a yacht or you would be in a nightclub and you'd have this avatar that you could customize everything about. You could adjust her eyebrow intensity or the clothes she was wearing or her body within the realms of certain conventional definitions of attractiveness. You what, could, what is you eyebrow could be, intensity? I think just like, you know, how plucked you wanted the eyebrows. So look. it's not like they become a circumflex the higher you intensity. No, no, you could, you could make her nose bigger. And with the male avatars too, very like basic sexy look. So that was one realm of possibility for VR porn. The next is interactive games where you're role playing almost like those adventure games from the 80s if you ever played any of the Sierra games like where you're walking around and finding clues and so it was like that but with a kind of sexual element so every once in a while you would unlock certain things and then be able to have sex with somebody virtual sex and then the third realm was the animated fantasy which was less interactive than the games but still a lot weirder than your like basic porno the game that i played in particular was called um femme domination so they had a series of guided fantasies basically where you as the avatar are passive and a digitally rendered lara croft style dominatrix is leading you through certain fantasies, which in this case were all kind of BDSM in theme. I wanted to ask you about what the that second kind of game you had talked about, the the role-playing games that were 3DX chat. Yeah. I mean, that sounds a little bit like an evolution of the old sex chat rooms like on AOL that people would be in in some way. I mean, did they seem related at all? Absolutely. I mean, it's a direct continuity. I mean, this stuff has been here since the very beginning of the internet. These, you know, initially there were these Usenet groups where you would go on and, and have sexy time with people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then AOL chats. And so, yeah, this is the second life. And so this is kind of the best rendered version of that. In science fiction, obviously, in a book like Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson or or Neuromancer by William Gibson, there's always this idea that the internet at some point will become this world that you enter into and you have a distinct personality in that world that wears a kind of costume or has a reputation that's separate from your real life. And and this is the closest thing, honestly, that I've experienced on my computer that started to reach that fantasy. I mean, were you able to get a sense when you were playing this game of how many, like how much people really were role-playing? Like to the extent to which people were experimenting with gender or, you know, orientation that you would have men playing as women or someone who identifies usually as a heterosexual going for homosexual scenarios in the game? Or is it not really clear? Well, it's not really clear. I mean, the tradition in this is that it's mostly men and most of the women are fake. (laughs) I, I don't think that that was true. I was surprised by the gender ratio. I think it genuinely has better gender parity because it is a safe space for women. But there was a lot of, like, literal role-playing. Like, you would click on somebody's profile and it would be like, I'm Sexy Pants's slave, or I belong to this person. You know, people playing out, like, digital BDSM dominatrix fantasies and stuff like that. But I wish I had explored that a little bit more than I had, because I never really tried 
meeting somebody. I was surprised. It seemed like a pretty good gender ratio. Of these VR porn genres, like, is there one that actually, in general, seems to be more effective as a turn-on than regular porn? Like, were you surprised? Or did it seem still, like, too incipient? I mean, I think it depends on your preferences. As embarrassing it is to still be turned on by, like, the cheesiest schoolboy fantasy or whatever, all the stuff that I was watching, you know, it works. That's why it's out there. I guess I was surprised that some of the weird animated stuff could be stimulating, but really what I found to me most effective was when the audio was really good because the visual stuff, especially with the animated stuff, you're looking at these robot beings and they have that digital thing where they kind of like quiver in space and their eyes are glazed. I mean, you're definitely interacting. It doesn't feel real. In putting this tech issue together, I realized that I've never really thought about how technology affects my life, if it's inherently good or bad. So I asked some of my fellow editors about it. Hey, I'm Austin Walker. I am the editor-in-chief of Waypoint Vice's website about video games. Hi, I'm Marina Garcia Vasquez. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Creators Project, which is the arts and culture publication here at Vice. I'm Jason Kebler. I'm a senior staff writer at Motherboard, where we scare people about the future. Nice. Good. (laughs) When you think about the future of technology, what does that mean to you? Do you have a pessimistic view of the future? Do you have an optimistic view? Is it scary? Is it good? Is it happy? What is it? Well, I think to us at Motherboard, it's the future of humanity. Um, We very rarely look at the new specs of the iPhone, but we do look at the new iPhone security features and how that might affect Uh, you know, how we communicate with each other. We look at uh, what's inside the iPhone in terms of, is it recyclable? What will happen to these iPhones when we're done with it? And we also look at, you know, technology is power and it's jobs. And we're seeing that a lot with politics in the U.S. right now. Like we've seen the loss of a lot of manufacturing jobs and that is in part because of automation and robotics. The thing I like about that answer is like, it's immediately deeply material, right? Like Mm -hmm. I think these questions can often get into this abstract space of like, oh, well, technology is a pharmaconic. It it can be good or it can be bad. Like, it depends on how you use it. And, like, that's, like, sweet and, like, an important perspective. But right now, I think, especially right now, it's important to be as material as possible here and think about how specifically will individual pieces of technology and policies around technology, um, both, when I say policies, both, like, corporate policy and also public policy, uh, affect the way that that technology like intermingles with our lives, um, and I'm I, I guess for me, else I guess I'm I'm despite being a person who's like oh I have all of these video game consoles I have a new phone I, I keep abreast of technology and like consumer electronics and all of that I'm also like deeply I am on the pessimistic side of things mm-hmm. when it comes to technology for the reason of, that Jason put forward, which is like how is this used to to what ends like how does this how does this entangle itself in already established power uh, systems of power and support the, the status quo. And, and it's hard for me to see the ways in which it challenges those things. But maybe that's because I'm a sourpuss. Like, I don't know, Marina, do you think that there is Mine is technology? so much more cerebral. Okay. Um, so uh, since we're invested in capabilities of technology and art, we're always evaluating how certain technologies can expand our perceptions as a society, how it can open up our minds to different planes. So different planes allow for a better understanding, better humanity, and, you know, kind of in art speak. So we're looking for ways in which there's new opportunities for experiences to allow for the full body 
to experience new mediums using all of our senses, not just our mind or not just our fingers, but how we communicate with, with our whole bodies. And so we think of how odd and revolutionary pointillism was in terms of perception or Dali's landscapes and surrealism. And we always like try to contextualize what is happening within technology, what's going on with VR, what's going on with AI, and where are those capabilities and how can that translate into better communication, better humanity. Yeah, I think that there's like definitely, I, I guess like my skepticism about technology saving us or something, some other you know formation of that, comes from, I totally believe you. Like again, in the space of gaming, I'm constantly seeing people doing really incredible things in the kind of independent and kind of alt game sphere using technology to tell stories that they couldn't have told uh, 10 years ago as, as like, there's kind of a, a kind of a democratization of that technology and the, the practices to build stuff that's interactive. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think about like the rise of the algorithm and who has access to that there's this historian who's Canadian historian who's dead named uh, Innes, Harold Innes. One of his disciples was Marshall McLuhan, whose name is like mm-hmm. a little bit more cachet. And one of Innes's key ideas was this thing called the monopoly of knowledge, which was this notion that not just having a lot of information, but having modes of thinking can transform the ways in which you act, which seems like when I say it like that, it's easy. One of my favorite examples of this is if you look at the the Middle Ages, only certain people had access to writing, right? Like monks had access to writing. And it's like, oh yeah, that's a, a famous thing. But the thing to think about second there is writing gives you access to certain forms of being and and acting. So if you can write something in long form, you can lay out an argument over the course of a year of writing. You can keep stock of how much uh, equipment you have on hand and how much you're using and what the crops are going to look like. And you you can start building this entire way of looking at the world that someone who can't write and read can't do because you just can't keep it all in your head. So that's like early data. Right, right, exactly, absolutely. And so now I'm like, ah, like who has that? What does, I don't, I can't even conceive of what having my hands on the algorithm looks like because I just don't have that information. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if I'm fully trustworthy of the people who do, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of black boxes in technology. Yes. And I think that's a reason to be pessimistic uh, is that, there's an article we ran up over a year ago now, but I love this headline and I think about it often. It was called The Rich and Their Robots Will Create a Permanent Underclass. And if you think about it, when we talk about things like automation and Facebook and Google kind of controlling the internet and the gateways in which we interact with it, uh, you know, Facebook and Google are getting very rich off of what they're doing mm-hmm. and, and it's it's left everyone else to scrounge for like an ever diminishing piece of the pie. Like 80% of all advertising revenue on the internet goes to Facebook or Google, which is like, okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. We're always having conversations, like real critical conversations around Westworld and Black Mirror um, and this like innate sense of desire for developed worlds or creating other worlds or amusement or pleasure totally. and extreme pleasure. We haven't gotten to the place where we're talking about policy, but that's important, you know, security, personal security, personal space. And so we're constantly having these conversations about how close we are into becoming yeah. these societies that work like Westworld or mm-hmm. like Black mm-hmm. Mirror. I feel like each vertical will have a fairly, you know, maybe some crossover, but I would think more or less maybe fairly separate in terms of audiences. Do you think your audiences have a mostly pessimistic versus optimistic view of the 
future of technology. So we've been pretty pessimistic so far, and I think that our audience thinks we are maybe a bit too pessimistic. <laughs> and I, I don't want to classify it as either pessimistic or optimistic, sure. but I think more of like a warning versus yeah. or think of the ramifications of X instead of just saying technology is great. And we see this a lot in Silicon Valley when you have companies like Uber saying, okay, we are going to automate our cars. And then, well, what happens to the drivers? And look at what they've already done with their drivers. Right. It's, it's very concerning. And uh, we have people on Facebook and on Twitter and people who email us saying that, you know, we're always picking on Uber. And it's not that we think Uber is an evil company or doesn't represent a lot of progress in a lot of ways, but it's Silicon Valley has moved very fast, broken a lot of things, and it has kind of left the wreckage behind it and not really thought about that. So I think we are optimistic about technology. We're always going to progress, but I think we have to do it carefully, and I think we have to think about the ramifications. So Mm -hmm. we're always trying to push our audience to at least consider the impact of these developments. Like when it comes to a bar conversation, yeah. I want I want people to say, hey, wait a minute. Facebook wants to give Internet to the developing world. But wait, they want to give Facebook to the developing world. Right. They don't want to the give internet. them open access to it. So. Like, so what's the person who's concerned about that do at that point? It's hard to know because these companies are incredibly powerful. And we've seen like I did a story a few months ago about the mayor of Pittsburgh's emails to yes. Uber. It's a really good story. People should go read it. Yeah. And so Uber piloted their uh, self-driving cars in Pittsburgh and there was no oversight there whatsoever. Like one day Uber showed up and they had self-driving cars on the streets of Pittsburgh. There was no regulation. There was no testing. There was nothing. Yeah, there's nothing. So I asked for all of the documents via a freedom of information request. And it's just the mayor of Pittsburgh emailing with Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber, saying how great Uber is. And look, look at this. I used Uber like 72 times last year, and I'm so excited. He's like such a brown He's noser. He's a fanboy brown noser. It's crazy. Yeah. It's and, such a good story. Yeah. And then, like, you know, he went on Pittsburgh radio the next day and said, oh, what mayor doesn't want jobs in their city or economic development in their city? And it's like, we all want that, but we also don't want tech titans to write the laws of our country on the fly. So in the issue, we have like a 10-page forum where we got basically nine experts, doctors or researchers or lawyers or documentarians and asked them, one question, which was, how do you make technology work better for us? Like, what do we do? And so everyone had different opinions, obviously, from paying attention to who's actually watching what we're doing and the NSA to keeping in mind public media and how we support public media. So it's not just you go to all these different sites which are powered by advertisers who are just watching what you click and sort of following you around the internet, but actually paying and putting money into something that's public that is basically just funded for us to learn and to do good for us. So I guess I'm just curious what, either from the perspective of your specific vertical or just personally, is there something that you could do or anyone can do to make technology work better for us? What do you think that would be? Come to me last. I haven't been <laughs> for a while. Yeah, no, that, that's a deep question. And it, it's something that we think about all the time. I think Technology has the opportunity to be incredibly populist and democratic, like Marina was saying, and I think that is the promise of it. And I think that we just need to continue to highlight people who are doing good work. 
for every time that Apple tries to lock down the repair of an iPhone, there's a group that's jailbreaking it, and there's a group that's hacking it to do better things, and there's a group that is, you know, sourcing parts from recycled phones and replacing things. So there are a lot of people doing very important and cool work within technology, and I think that as long as those efforts continue, there will be companies that for lack of a better term, are good, or at least are focused on social progress. They want to at least market social progress. They want to capture that energy. And and some some companies do believe in this very strongly. Like there's some small internet service providers that are wholly dedicated to net neutrality and, you know, lowering the cost of broadband access and things like that. And we hear so much about Comcast, Comcast, Verizon, like these companies that are huge and, and are very bad. It's not necessarily the case that those companies are bad, but you have all these sort of under artisanal companies that are (laughs) doing great things. And I think we need to promote those and hope that we see more of them. Totally. That makes sense. I think ours goes back to education and supporting uh, organizations or institutions that are investing in, let's say, female designers. NYU had just announced, you know, their new fellowship for women and encouraging women in this field. The same way that Girls Who Code, starting women off very early on because we need a very level playing ground. More and more gaming is becoming a heightened art form. And we really believe in all of those people who are programming modders, who are hacking more women into the games, showing better senses of self, self self-representation in gaming, and then moving that into the future. And the future of gaming for us is like a huge realm of opportunity for everything digital arts. And so when we think of the gaming, it's like this like hub for everything else. Right. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of like experimental stuff. Like even though we cover VR on the site, like I think VR, I think it's great that gaming exists for people to figure out VR, but the long-term uses of, of VR and AR are going to be telecommunications and productivity and just general entertainment usage. I do like to think about gaming as an experimental space for people figuring this stuff out. Um, And I do like that as the tools to make games become more populist, like those are people who could theoretically start to understand coding in a way that they could then go apply it to understanding, you know, what sort of algorithms are at work at Google or how, you know, other sorts of things are being procedurally generated over here or whatever. Um, But I'm still still struggling to think about, like, what the one thing a person could do is to stand up here. I, I guess maybe the thing is because we're at this point talking broadly about technology. Maybe the, the other way to think about it is like pick a thing and like become super knowledgeable about it and follow the policies that are being proposed and follow the bills that are being you know uh, submitted and write to your senators and join a company that is involved in net neutrality or join a, an online organization. Like find the thing that you really care about there and be that intercession. Instead of trying to like know everything about the world of technology, period, being like, okay, I'm going to zero in on net neutrality. This is a thing that clearly has allies in in the business world. It's not like I'm not throwing a tomato at a brick wall here. Like I can I can move these forces and like working towards one thing at a time is something I can imagine being hopeful about. Ellis, from editing this magazine, what did you learn about technology? Yeah. <laughs> from us. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Or from your writers, yeah. Um, I wasn't prepared for people to turn the questions on to me instead. Um, no, I think I learned a lot. I mean, I feel like with print, obviously we're not very technologically advanced. You know, we're still sort of like an old form of media, but it was a really interesting issue to work on because I think it was just, I think I have a tendency not to think about technology in all these different ways that you guys are forced to think about it since you deal with it every day and you're writing about it. I think with print, you know, we think more about specific stories and 
there's this piece, this Q&A with this guy who basically a cyborg who is trying to in a way like commercialize these little just like pieces that you can attach to your body so you can know which way is always north or you can feel earthquakes before they happen so just understanding that kind of culture and like how he's trying to get these products out like that is something i've never even like considered um, I think the Have piece, you ever needed to, to feel a, a, an earthquake before it happens? No, but I feel like knowing yeah. where north is at all times would be very helpful That'd because be dope. I am terrible with directions. I mean, just like like I'm getting out of the subway station and like, yes, all right, where? Exactly. Uh, okay, that's north, which means I have to go south. Boom, got it. Like, exactly. That'd be great. Our company is always sending reporters and shooters around the world going after the next story, and they usually come back with a memento or two. Sometimes it's weird or funny, and sometimes it looks pretty mundane. But to that reporter, it usually affects them on a personal level. At Vice, we call them artifacts and feature one in the magazine each month. Here to describe one item is Brian Anderson of Motherboard. I was handed a protective face mask when I first arrived at the city morgue in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, in early 2014. And if I wasn't yet accustomed to the singular stench of death, and I certainly was not, it was assumed that the smell of decomposing bodies that had been treated with chemicals to slow that very decomposition would overwhelm my senses if I didn't wear a mask. And the morgue staffer who handed it to me was absolutely right. So I spent the next week inside the morgue, which is a nondescript government building, and I was shadowing an unassuming doctor whose work rehydrating unidentified human bodies and remains is featured in Still Life, Motherboard's documentary about DIY forensics, which we published in 2014 as well. The building absolutely reeked and this standard issue cloth mask that I was handed and it's the same sort of disposable air filtering accoutrement that you've probably worn to prevent inhaling really nasty airborne particulates during a home renovation that was the sort of mask that I was wearing and it immediately became part of my person and it was really the only thing that could partially block the smell of decaying corpses, which is unrelenting, and the stink of it eventually infused the mask entirely, and also my clothes and even my hair. The smell just would not go away. Today, if I hold the mask to my face, I can swear that I pick up traces of this really grim medley of odors that cut through the morgue. And it's said our sense of smell is the mind's most powerful memory trigger, and there's really no masking that, as it were. The Vice Magazine podcast is a production of Vice Media. This issue was brought to you with the help from our friends at Motherboard, the Creators Project, and Waypoint, and was produced and edited by Tim Barnes. For more information on the podcast or how to subscribe to the magazine, visit vice.com and be sure to leave a review for the Vice Magazine podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast app that you use. I'm Alice Jones, and I'd like to give a special thanks to all the voices you heard on this episode. Elizabeth Renstrom, Brian Anderson, Hassan Hussein, Emily Witt, Chris Carroll, Austin Walker, Marina Vasquez, and Jason Keebler. We'll be back next month with the March issue.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.